Folks, we're in the gospel according to John. If you didn't know, uh, we kind of have been taking these large narrative chunks, these large chunks of the story, because that's how John is uh, intended to be consumed, in big chunks. Today, um, I am going to test your patience with scripture reading. We have um, the rest of chapter five. Last week, Nick was so kind to, to come in while our family was um, out uh, celebrating my father-in-law's 70th birthday. The whole crew rolled in and he did John chapter five, verses one to 18. We're about to hit, we're gonna double tap on 18 and then we're gonna go all the way, all the way through the end of chapter five. So um, in the words of the scriptures, gird your loins because we're going in. Um, This is uh, the word of the Lord. John chapter five, verses 18 to 47. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you'll be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And I testify, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the works that I'm doing now, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. 
You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is the word of the Lord. So there is a question that is pulsing through this text. Kind of like your heart beats when you slow down long enough, you can maybe even feel it in your throat or in your arms. You can, that, there is a, a question pulsing through the heart of this text. And the question is this, what will be enough? Like what will be enough for Jesus to be received? Does Jesus need to like say the right thing? Does he need to present the right data points to his audience? And then that will be enough? Or does he need someone to confirm his account? Does he need the testimony or the witness? If he has the right witness, will that be enough for Jesus to be received? And if that's still not enough, then perhaps Jesus needs to like put his money where his mouth is. Maybe he needs to do some more of the God stuff, show us a sign. Maybe if he does enough of the God stuff, then he will be received. What will be enough for Jesus to be received by those to whom he is sent. That, to my mind, is the question pulsing through this text. And on the other side of that is like, what what about us? What will be enough for us to receive Jesus as he comes to us? And this might be a massive question to you. It might mean nothing to you. But what's clear is that in this massive passage, we cannot, like, we don't have enough time here to nuance out all the things that are happening here. So, so to get at this question, what will be enough? We're just going to journey through this passage with three kind of meta themes. Uh, the first is the incident. The second is the speech. And lastly is the response. So the incident, the speech, and the response. And so to start, uh, we actually need to look back. This will be a little bit of review, and some of it will like double tap on what Nick was, was talking about last week. But if you were here this past week, or uh, if you're familiar with the beginning parts of John chapter 5, and if not, this is for you. This is the incident. We, we would do well to recall that before the speech is a catalyzing event, kind of this watershed moment, an incident that gives way to all of the words that Jesus just gave us. And it's... It's a healing, and it's not an ordinary healing. I mean, I don't know if any healing is itself ordinary. It actually like defies what 
we would call ordinary. It's uh, beyond natural, or perhaps it's the most natural thing. But nevertheless, this, this healing, it is layered with significance because Jesus restores the body of a person who is, whose body is um, littered with this kind of sickness that leaves him immobile. And Jesus restores this person's body to wholeness on a day of rest, on a Sabbath day. It's a day in the Hebrew mind that is set apart by God for the people to enjoy who God is. So Jesus restores a man on the Sabbath. There's the incident. But just to, to get us into this a little bit more, here's a refresher. This is John chapter 5, picking up in verse 5. Now, a man was there. Where is, is there? He's by this pool that people hold. It has some kind of mystical power. There is this, uh, like, urban legend, you would say, that an angel would come and dip its finger in the pool, and as it spins, that if you got down into it, if you're the first one to enter in, there would be, like, this residue of miraculous power just sitting on top, and it would heal you. But because he was immobile and on his mat, he never had anybody to pick him up and get him to the waters, therefore, for 38 years. He was there. But verse 5, there was a man, and he'd been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there... And when he realized that the man had been disabled for a long time, he said to him, do you want to become well? John's going to go on in short order in that, in that passage to remind us that indeed this took place on the Sabbath. He's going to confirm that. And that the Sabbath will be the pretense. It'll be the reason for the religious leaders to kind of beef with Jesus, to, to come in and after Jesus. Because according to those teachers of the law, those religious elite, when Jesus released healing for this man, he did so in a way that was out of bounds. It, it, it was not okay for Jesus to heal this man in this way because he picked up his mat. He, he worked and therefore violated the terms and their interpretation of the law. And so without getting too technical, it boils down to this. Jesus' compassion offended their moral and religious sensibilities. Like Jesus' compassion frustrated their religiosity. And what's so curious, at least to me, is that the very ones, these are the religious elite, these are the theologians and the scholars, the pastors, the ones who instruct others in the law of God, the law that's given as a gift to the people so they would flourish, those people, they fail to comprehend God's presence with and in Jesus. And when Jesus releases healing under these, in this environment, they say, no, that is incongruent with God's good for the people because you caused that man to break the terms of the Sabbath. And according to their interpretation, this man, this paralyzed man, he ought to still be on his mat, but Jesus has a different way of seeing him and his condition. He, I don't know, did you notice this? Jesus sees him. Like, he, do these words ever just grip you? Like how perceptive and tactile and sticky the gospels are? Jesus sees him, and then he asks him this piercing question, do you want to be well? When I hear that question, I, I hear like dignity and I hear love and I hear compassion. 
Jesus doesn't presume he knows what this man wants, which for me, like, kind of frustrates how I see Jesus. I'm like, well, of course Jesus knows, but apparently Jesus doesn't know if he wants to be well. And we can argue until we're blue in the face about whether Jesus does or doesn't know. Nevertheless, he asks the question, do you want to become well? And he sees him. He invites him to receive restoration on that day of rest. And the man does. He picks up his mat and he goes. But by contrast, the religious leaders, um, this is an incident about the content and the keeping of the law. For them, this is a religious matter. You did the wrong thing. For them, this is about the what of God. And their what of God has crowded out the who of God who is breaking in and on the scene in Jesus. For them, the incident is about the what. And meanwhile, Jesus is literally embodying the compassion of God. He sees this man, restores him on a day of rest. But that's not the whole story, is it? See, when Jesus finds this guy in the temple, this is right before our teaching text today, when Jesus finds him in the temple, do you remember what Jesus says to him? Jesus says, okay, yeah, um, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. It's as though Jesus moves deeper than his healing and he begins to speak to his soul. And Jesus calls this man to resist sin and to go so far as to cut it out of his life. And this, I think for us, is a peculiar thing because though this man is well, think about this. If you are paralyzed and you are on a mat and you are there for 38 years, that means you are not participating in the community life. It's, it's as though he was longing to be well. Jesus restored him to community life. And yet when he meets Jesus again, it's as though wellness is not the end with Jesus. Jesus is seeking more than his, and I would say more than our wellness. Jesus, as we learned in, in John chapter 4, is seeking worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and truth. That is, those who will ascribe worth to God and are willing to remove with him any obstacle that stands in the way. Though you are well, there is something pervasive that you would do well to rout out in your life, and Jesus calls this sin. Because sin always leads to death. See, for Jesus, this is far more than a religious matter. The incident, according to the religious, is about the what of God. But for Jesus, the incident is about the who of God. Because the consequences, the reality is that full life beyond wellness is on offer. And if you go on, I don't know, the TikToks or Instagram, any of the social media platforms, like you can find so many people advocating for your wellness. If you're a fan of Russell Brand or not, uh, you know that his life in some sense has been defined by wellness and what does it mean to move toward wholeness as he's a part of a recovery community. That, that line of rhetoric in a recovery community is often about wellness. It's about a general sense, an ambiguous kind of squishy divine thing. But Jesus is saying the who is not a general squishy divine thing. The who is in front of you. There is life on offer. That for Jesus is the incident. It's not just a religious matter. That is what prompts the speech. 
And I think it's crucial that we keep the incident in mind, this matter of full life, because Jesus is about to go off. And I don't, I don't think his tone is angry. I don't think there's like venom on his lips. Um, but Jesus is about to unfurl kind of some head-spinning topics. Jesus talks about divine love. He talks about authority, which we love. Um, he talks about resurrection and eternal life and truth and judgment. All of these things spill out of Jesus to these and with these religious leaders. And in 28 verses, Jesus, he unleashes like with this torrent force, the biblical drama. And here's what I mean when I say the biblical drama. If you were to flip or tap your way on over to pages one and two of the Bible, what you would find is this really intimate scene. You would find this intimate scene of a creator who reaches down into the dirt. Just, if, if you will, just picture this. Like, God is spirit, and yet when the, the, the authors of the scriptures are, are trying to capture imaginatively this moment, they imagine God reaching into the, into the soil, drawing the soil up to God's closest space and breathing on them. So this human form takes place, and then face to face, breath to breath, life to life, humanity comes. And there you have God and humanity right there in one another's presence. And God gives humanity this charge to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of the earth, to, to push the Edenic blessing out into all of creation. That's on pages one and two. And, and for a whole page, it happens. Goodness and beauty and glory are shared between humanity and God's very self. And we don't know the timeline on this. I mean, this could have been, I don't know, we have no idea. But it's, um, as far as the authors are concerned, it's as though, like, humanity comes, things start going, and then it just devolves as quickly as it comes together. The biblical drama, therefore, what Jesus is reckoning with, it's about the human fallout. It's, it's about the relational fracturing, it's the hiding, it's the accusations, it's the, the bitterness, it's that sin sickness that plagues our souls. This is what Jesus is confronting. And the way that Jesus begins to get at this, it's, it's almost comical. Um, Jesus is a tradesman. He's from up in this northern part of, of the land called the Galilee. And it's likely he worked with wood or probably stone. And so Jesus is a tradesman, and he starts talking like a tradesman. This, is, this opening part of the speech is the language of apprenticeship. He's talking about the relationship between a father and a son. And just as an apprentice or a son would watch their master or their father to understand and learn the trade, so too Jesus watches his father in heaven to take up the divine commission, to push the bounds of flourishing, that Edenic blessing, the healing of those who are broken on days of restoration. That's what Jesus is doing. For Jesus, when a man is burdened by brokenness, it makes the most sense for him to encounter healing on the Sabbath. Because that's what it's all about. It's about every kind of goodness flooding creation. Jesus is simply demonstrating, like his father, the renewal of God on offer in the kingdom. And so he says this in verse 19. Very truly, just a little aside, anytime you're reading and Jesus throws a very truly at you, 
you, you best pay attention. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. How contrary those words are to the like, life script we abide by. I, I, I see it so clearly because I have a, a four and a two and a half year old, very clear that he's two and a half now because he's like, he's now his own person, but they can, they can do it themselves. Jess told me the story yesterday, they're playing out in the sandbox and um, she's asked him maybe three, four, 20 times not to do a particular thing, has come over, coached him, created space, all of those helpful parenting techniques. And uh, she says, who do you think the boss is here? And without missing a step, he goes, me? I'm like, yeah, that, okay, there it is. But Jesus says the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, which I guess is an indictment to me. Um, nevertheless, we read on. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. See, Jesus is no longer working with stone or wood. He's not in a quarry or a craftsman shop. His craft, like his father, is justice and eternal life. Jesus is placing himself on equal footing with the Father in heaven. And uh, for his audience, this is a great offense. That's actually, John will give us this little, little sidebar thing. He like whispers, he says, and that's why they were trying to kill him all the more. The Sabbath thing was one, but now they're trying to put Jesus to death. It's as though the religious leaders has, have cut this beautiful bouquet of flowers and they have uh, placed it on display for all to see. It's a beautiful vase and they have the, these clippings, these beautiful flowers and they're there, it's in this vase, it's well adorned, it's decorated, they're watering it. They have like those little nitrogen nutrient packets that you get from your florist, you know? And you're like, what do I do with this? Oh, I read, I put it, they're, they're attending to, they're giving these flowers everything they need. And yet, uh, try as they might, that beautiful bouquet of flowers, it will not live. It might have what looks like life. It actually is quite beautiful, but it's not connected to the source. What they think is vibrant is in fact fading. It's disconnected. It is devoid of love. Listen to how Jesus kind of restates this. This is in verse 39. He says, you study or, or it's, the, it's almost a command, like examine, like go and, however you interpret this, whether it's you study the scriptures diligently or go and examine, the, the point remains the same. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have them. It's as though they're saying, no, 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 look at our beautifully adorned bouquet. Look here. This is what life looks like, and Jesus is saying you're missing it. What's curious is the rabbis of Jesus' day, those who are teachers, they, they held a different fact than what Jesus is saying. They would, hold, they would hold to the reality that the law and strict observance of the law did in fact lead to life. There's these writings called the Ethics of the Fathers, and it's this literature that reflects the wisdom of the day. This is what they said. He who has acquired the words of the law has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. It goes on later. Great is the law. For it gives to those who practice it life in this world and in the world to come. 
This is the conventional wisdom that's informing those who Jesus is dealing with. And he is saying, you think you have life there, but you don't because you refuse to come to me. And I think what's infuriating about Jesus is that he's not arguing against their point. He's saying, yes, the law is great because it finds its completion in me. Yeah, the, the law is beautiful because it leads to the giver, to the source, the eternal word. Do you remember Jesus is not opposed to the law? I actually, I, I need to hear that because I, I kind of have this like anti-establishment spirit in me. I don't know if any of you feel that like just you're raising whatever finger of choice rises up naturally in your spirit. Mine is the middle one. And I just, I don't know this deep, I'm like, Ugh. and there's something about Jesus that's very punk rock. But what he also says here is I did not come to abolish the law, but to bring it to its fulfillment. I want to see all of that fulfilled because the law is good and it is beautiful and yet it is incomplete. Jesus wants to bring what it desired to bring, which is life to completion. But the law is like this beautiful bouquet. It needs its roots to be reestablished in the source. They refuse. They refuse Jesus. They refuse the giver. They refuse the source and Jesus is there offering it fully. But the teachers, those who stand behind the law, who say, look at our beautifully adorned bouquet, um, perhaps the evangelicals, we might even say, those, those who obsess over the what, the, the, the doctrine, the technique. Uh, gosh, this is like, I tell you what, when I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about all of the techniques, the conversations that I get to have with folks about the music's not this, or the setting's not this, or the aesthetics are this, or the liturgy is X, or the communion is Y, like all of these things. It's like we just obsess over these techniques and Jesus is like, yes, those are beautiful and there's good and they're to be valued, but you're just pouring these little nitrogen, like you're pouring in these things and I want to connect you to something more. It's like we've mistaken the fading flower for the permanent glory. Jesus wants to push the bounds of Eden. What if Jesus is here today saying, I want to like push the bounds of that Edenic blessing into the hollows of your heart? What if I want to, I want to reawaken you to beauty? And just in, in case you're new here or you've been coming a long time, let me just remind us, our doctrine, our kind of low church, semi-liturgical flavor, our practiced-based spiritual formation, Lord willing, like none of those things will lead to life. They're great containers for life, but they're not the source. Our techniques, they merely grope for the what, just like the religious leaders did. And yeah, they look vastly different in 2023, but the reality still stands. Unless we are connected to the source, unless we accept the source of life, and like that woman at the well, unless we thirst for living water, like we'll inevitably nurture fading beauty when the vibrant life is on offer. And I and just hear me here, I, I'm not advocating for like an anti-intellectual spirituality. I'm not saying um, like, let's throw technique, let's just like sit in silence or something, although I think that could do something. It feels like God's calling us to something like that. Um, I think it's a both and, but, we, but if we think that our technique will get us to Jesus, we are fools. 
because Jesus is already pursuing us. And so in some sense, we get to turn aside and say, maybe our techniques are getting in the way. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're just a container. But we get to sit with curiosity before the Father. The simple thing is for us to acknowledge that God is moving toward us, not necessarily just to acquire knowledge about Him, because we can know a lot about God but not know God. I, I mean, like I went to seminary, did all the stuff. You can read all the books, but you cannot be known or know that God is for you and with you and desires you. Jesus is inviting us to move from the what to the who. And so in verse 44, Jesus says this, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This story ought to stop us in our very tracks. The religious are reasonable people. The religious are disciplined and devoted. The religious look a lot like us. They're intelligent. And I, I think it's really easy to throw shade on the religious and be like, yeah, I would be with Jesus and his disciples. But what's likely is that I am the religious. And I can't speak for you in this, but my guess is that we probably stand there together. And what is indicting to me is right before this, Jesus has this shocking line, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. It's like they have held up this beautiful bouquet and says, this is what love looks like. This is what glory looks like. This is goodness. But Jesus is down in the broken spaces, inviting people into a new type of life. So I imagine that we can again bring our brokenness before Jesus because he might just be crouched there waiting for us in our pain. Like we can have all the trappings of a God life, of a God-shaped life, the disciplines, the devotion, the worship, we can have it all, but we can actually not have God. That's a startling thing. We can be absent of the love of God though our life can look like God. I don't pretend to know exactly what that means. <laughs> But there's something stark about that. And so I, I would just say, if, if you're in a season where God feels more uh, absent than present, let me just encourage you all the more. Continue to come to these places. Treat church like a discipline. Like maybe the gathering is for you in this season a thing that you do and that you say, God, I don't feel you here. I don't know if you're there, but I'm going to show up because somehow your character says that you are faithful, that you have long suffering love. So I'm going to be there because I'm trusting that that's actually true, even though I kind of don't believe it. If that's where you are, the discipline is what, where God will meet you. So it's not an either or. It is very much a both and. But the goal is that we might have the love of God in our hearts, the very source. Somehow, like knowledge begins to, to fail here. And what we know about God when it can no longer get us to God or his love, I, I just, we need different, I guess, words. And so when, when my words failed me, I turned to this poet and songwriter, Strawn Coleman. He writes on this very thing and he says this, and I just offer his words to you. When we divorce knowledge from its source, the spirit of life, it, like everything else, begins to die. Its colors fade and its light begins to dim. It's not that knowledge itself is all of a sudden wrong or incorrect. It's simply that it no longer carries the transformative power God intended it to. See, when God becomes an object 
a what. It's really easy to try and consume God. So it's then our effort and our community's effort to remind us that God is not a what but a who. He is the non-consumable and yet accessible God. And knowledge with God, it's conversational and it's open. In a moment, we will turn to the bread and the cup. We will literally take God's broken life into us as a visible sign that he is with us. And so while we cannot know him totally, we can know him accurately. We can know him as the God who joins us in our pain. We can know him as the God who says, take up your mat and go and sin no more. We can know him as the God who actually has the audacity to confront our religiosity. We can know him not fully, but accurately. And if you're sitting here thinking, this is perhaps a bit ridiculous. (laughs) And um, are you asking me to trust a God who I cannot fully No, I cannot fully love or trust. And that in that place, like then he'll meet me there. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think that increasingly that's where we're going to be going is into this thin place of like the mystery of God meeting us in our uncertainty. It is, it's quite easy to abandon, um, trust and replace it with understanding. Trust is interpersonal. Trust is frustrating. Trust is hard. Understanding is itself something that I can pursue on my own terms. With a microscope, it's clinical. So it seems to my mind that God is inviting our community. And by the way, I could be wrong about this. I, I don't think that I am. I genuinely think that God is inviting us toward a deeper, more intimate trust, like the one where he's gathered up our form and breathed life into us. I think that he wants to breathe a new life into us. Um, But if we think we have to understand or get God before we can trust him, that would be like saying, well, I need to get the dynamics of flight. I need to understand the physics of, of all of that before I get it into an airplane. And if you did that, you would likely never get off the ground. Or if you said, well, I need to get oxygen before I take a breath, you would die from the poison of your own body before you breathed. So trust is the space where we simply inhale God's grace and we exhale our frustration. It is that simple. And so I would just invite us as we turn to respond um, to do two things. In the silence that's available here, um, I'm going to just lead us to this little place. This is called a beholding prayer. Um, I'm simply just going to guide us through this. This might feel rather uncomfortable. Um, That makes sense for the first time that you do this, the first few times. This is broadly the contours of it is um, if knowledge fails and God's inviting me into trust, what's my response? Like if there is healing and the opportunity of full life and Jesus responds that the love of God is on offer and that I can trust him, what is my response? Well, perhaps it's that we get to behold the love of God in the face of Jesus. And what I've realized as of late is like, I don't know how to do that. When words and understanding fail, I don't know how to do that. I have to relearn how to do this. And so I want us to do this together. I, I'm um, 
So this is all invitation. You can sit here awkwardly with us, but for the next few minutes, this is what I'm going to invite you who are willing. Um, if you can keep your eyes closed, um, I invite you to do so. Um, and just to start with your breath, to just take a breath in through your nose, to hold it for a second, and to release it. To again, take another breath in to that kind of deepest place in you. Maybe it's your heart or your chest or your stomach and hold it there. And to release it. And wherever it was that you felt like your breath reached, maybe it was just your throat. That's as far as it went. Or maybe it was as deep as your stomach. That in that place, um, imagine that there in that place, the deepest part of you, that there are these French doors, um, these kind of, this opening to your inner woman or your inner man. And that behind those doors lays all of you, the good and the not so good, the beautiful and the shamed, the guilt, all of you the celebration, the sadness, all of you lies behind those doors. And as you stand there, I just invite you, picture those doors. And in that place, just um, imagine, like with, with both hands, one hand on each handle, opening those doors. And then on the other side, there's Jesus. Perhaps you see his face. Perhaps you just behold his presence. I mean, what does he look like? Is he familiar? Is he unfamiliar? What's the look on his face? Is he saying anything to you? <laughs> now there with the doors wide open, imagine Jesus there with you, you seeing him, him seeing you, seeing all of you. And imagine his love moving toward you. To the places of shame that he's speaking life and kindness. To the places that are heavy that he is holding you there. Maybe Jesus has a word for you in this moment. And maybe you hear nothing. Just try holding his gaze. To the gift is not in what you do with him or for him or what he says, but the gift is just being with him. To behold the love of God in the face of Jesus.
We'll just stay there for a moment longer. You beholding God and God beholding you. Now I just invite you to thank him. Thank him for being with you, for not moving away from you. And as I pray, you can just stay there with Jesus. And as I say amen, we're going to come back to this room, this space, and imagine Jesus is still with us, and we'll turn to remember him and the bread and the cup. But Jesus, we thank you that you are not far from us, that your love is actually at that deepest place of us. And every time that we breathe in and we notice that that breath is coming in, that that's where you meet us. You are closer to us than the very breath in our lungs. Your presence is paper thin to us. How can we respond? What will be enough? Jesus, we say you have to be enough. Where our understanding fails, Jesus, you have to be enough. And so in that place, the mystery of you seeing us and us being seen by you fully and truly known, we thank you. We thank you that you're with us, that you are not far from us. And Jesus, we thank you in this moment. Amen.